Jesus says, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. What does that mean? What does it mean to receive God's kingdom like little children? I want to be a part of God's reign. I want to live in the kingdom of God. Don't you? Don't all of us? Today, Jesus challenges those of us who want to live in God's great and glorious reign to receive it as if we were little children. Today, we ask, what is it that little children can teach us about God and God's kingdom? How does a child receive the kingdom of God? Eagerly, wholeheartedly, with clarity, without compromise. A child knows instinctively what is of God and what is not of God. A child knows that you cannot come to church and promise to love your neighbor as yourself and then get in your car and yell obscenities at the driver who cuts you off on your way home. A child knows that you cannot boast of putting a big check in the alms basin and then grumble about the blight that street people have become in our town. A child knows that you cannot promise to love your spouse for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death and then wake up one morning and decide you just don't love them anymore. Preachers like me are rightly cautioned not to oversimplify Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce. Jesus, for one, never knew the challenge of balancing the demands of work and children and marriage. And surely the church can do far better than to shame couples who are trapped in lifeless unions or worse, yoked to abusive partners. There is nothing holy or godly about clinging to a relationship in which your safety or your dignity is threatened. But by appealing to the perspective of children, Jesus applies a standard for marriage as an image of God's love for the world that is remarkably simple and effective. A child knows the difference between a marriage that unravels because their parents just didn't want to try anymore and one that was over and gone long before anyone said a word to them. And part of what it means for us to receive the kingdom of God is to recognize the difference. This challenging gospel passage isn't actually about divorce. This isn't Jesus' way of defining under what circumstances a marriage is justifiably terminated, which, if it were, is basically never. Instead, this is yet another piece in Jesus' long and complicated teaching about the nature of God and of God's kingdom. And in this case, Jesus appeals to the institution of marriage 
as a way to explain to us what it means to prioritize our place in the reign of God. In short, Jesus shows us that getting our hearts right about marriage helps us get our hearts right about God. Now, admittedly, this isn't really a straightforward teaching that Jesus makes. He uses a, an unusual approach that takes a little unwinding. But before we break it down, it might help to remember what Jesus did in a similar circumstance back in Mark chapter 7, a passage we heard not all that long ago on Sunday morning. Back then, Jesus was dealing with the same religious authorities who that time were complaining about how he allowed his disciples to eat with unwashed hands. What an easier passage to deal with from the pulpit, huh? You might remember how that argument went. The Pharisees came and asked Jesus why he was ignoring all the traditions about washing your hands and, and cups and pots and bronze kettles. But Jesus turned their accusation back upon them and quoted not the obvious relevant passages from Leviticus, which have to do with washing things, but instead Jesus quoted Isaiah. The prophet who said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Instead of appealing to a direct and obvious discussion of the legal texts, Jesus proposed a sideways move, effectively dismissing the norms for ritual purity by prioritizing the content of our hearts over the content of our actions. It's a lot like what we read today. This time, the Pharisees come to test Jesus, but instead of talking about hand-washing, they want to talk about divorce. The fact that they would choose divorce as a way to test Jesus reminds us that this was as difficult an issue in Jesus' day as it is for us today. But again, just as back in Mark 7, Jesus chooses not to engage in a straight discussion of the obvious text, which in this case would be Deuteronomy 24, the only Old Testament passage that talks about the way divorce is obtained. But instead, Jesus goes sideways again and looks to Genesis 2, the story of creation, a passage that conveys not the limitations or boundaries for marriage, but it's unfathomable power. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What happens when we start, not with the circumstances under which a marriage can be dissolved, but with the beautiful, unbreakable bond that exists between two persons who have committed themselves to a holy, lifelong, monogamous union. For starters, it challenges gender stereotypes, even those that were held dear back in Jesus' day. When Jesus explained to his disciples later on in the house that a man who remarries after divorcing his wife commits adultery against her, he was challenging the theological assumptions of that time. Back then, rabbinical teaching held that men couldn't commit adultery against women. 
Instead, only a man whose honor and claim upon his wife would be, dismir- would be besmirched by infidelity could be the victim of adultery. And because a man was allowed to divorce his wife for practically any reason, including disappointment with their love life, it made no sense to hold a man responsible for his actions as long as his indiscretion didn't threaten another man's marriage. But that is no longer true if we listen to what Jesus teaches us. That doesn't hold up anymore if we understand that marriage isn't just a contractual arrangement between two people, but a mutual spiritual, mystical union that is as fundamental to our identity as our personhood. Jesus wants people to remember that marriage as an institution that embodies the power of unconditional, indissoluble love is such an overwhelming and important good that human beings can't approach it as something that can be unraveled or dissolved but as something that must be embraced even in the face of adversity, just like the kingdom of God. When we commit to love like that, even and especially when staying committed is hard, we give ourselves over to something that has the power to change us, even to soften the hard-heartedness within us that otherwise seeks to pull us apart. When we are immersed in unconditional love, we are set free from all the insecurities that cause us to tighten up and close down and shut ourselves off. But love like that isn't easy. It draws out and quells our self-centeredness. In order to take hold within us, that kind of love exposes our vulnerabilities and anxieties in order that they might be transformed. Sometimes the process of dying to self is too much for us to bear. Sometimes the change that love asks of us is so painful that we would rather fold up and quit. But those who want to enter the kingdom of God must receive it like little children. And the little child within us knows that having something that good is worth giving up everything else we have. Lots of marriages have been under incredible strain because of the pandemic. Although the last 19 months have made being together particularly challenging, the pandemic has brought to the surface more than that the reasons why marriage is hard all the time. It's hard to give up ourselves for the sake of another. It's hard to let go of our wants and needs in order to be a part of something bigger. It's hard to be vulnerable when that vulnerability scares us to death. But the life-giving power of marriage isn't realized only when things are going well, but when love rescues us, even when things are falling apart. 
isn't that also true about the kingdom of God? 